So Isaiah 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat, come, buy wine and milk, without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen, that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will, not sum- Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you, because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. For he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, So are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it." You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Hi, g'day. My name is Ben. I'm the Uni Church pastor. It's great to be with you as we open God's Word together. Uh, today we're continuing uh, in Isaiah, so if you have Isaiah 55 uh, open in front of you, please do have it there so that we can uh, look at it as we go through. Everyone wants to be happy. Whoever you are, whatever your background, uh, we can say that confidently, uh, every human being wants to be happy. Now keep in mind we're not talking about uh, just some flippant or flimsy happiness, Uh, We're talking about a deep-seated satisfaction and joy and contentment, a a feeling of of fulfillment in life. That is something that every human being longs for. Holocaust victim Anne Frank, before she was killed, wrote, We all live with the objective of being happy. Our lives are all different and yet the same. Different and yet the same. Because we all pursue the same goal, but we pursue it in very different ways. One person might seek it in a steady and reliable income. Another, in a fulfilling vocation. Some seek happiness in family relationships. Some might spend their Friday nights out partying, pursuing short-term pleasures of sex and drugs. While others might spend their Friday nights in studying, pursuing the long-term satisfaction of being highly respected in their fields. And so even lives that on the surface look like polar opposites, underneath the surface, both of those people are actually searching for the same thing. We're all looking to be satisfied. 
And this is so important to get. In the 17th century, French philosopher Blaise Pascal noted, whatever different means people employ, they all tend towards this end. He's talking about happiness in context. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, just attended with different views. This is the motive of every action of every person. We may take very different paths in life, but we're all looking for the same thing. And let me clarify, that is not a bad thing. It isn't a bad thing to want to be happy or to be satisfied. No, on the contrary, Christians believe that God has built us this way. God has designed us to, and made us to desire fulfillment, and that's a good thing. But the question is, how do you find it? Where do you look for it? How do you find fulfillment or happiness or satisfaction? That's the million-dollar question. And there's a passage we had read earlier, Isaiah 55, that encourages us to take this question seriously. Of Where do you actually find that thing? Have a look in your Bibles with me where we see this in verses 1 to 2 of Isaiah 55. Check it out. God says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Now, God's not talking here about a literal hunger and thirst. No, he's talking about that that hunger, that thirst, that powerful desire that everyone has to be fulfilled, to be satisfied. And the question God puts before us here is, why spend your life working for what does not satisfy? Why spend your life chasing after something that is only going to leave you empty? I mean, no one wants to do that, right? No one wants to get to the end of their life absolutely empty-handed and full of regret. regret. No one wants that. But it's easier said than done. How do you avoid being empty-handed? How do you find fulfillment? That brings us back to the million-dollar question. That's a big question for us today, and it was a critical question as well for God's people two and a half thousand years ago. As we saw last Sunday, God had brought his people back from exile in Babylon. He'd, he'd comforted them, and he'd brought them home to Jerusalem. And he didn't just give them a, a clean slate or a fresh start. He'd promised a deeper solution in Jesus, the suffering servant, who would forgive their sins once and for all. God had provided that solution, but that left a very big open question. Would they avail themselves of that solution? You know, a good doctor can offer treatment, but that's only effective for the patients who choose to accept it. So God has provided the solution for sin, and he's now calling his people to come to him, to accept it, to listen to him, to stop living for themselves, and to listen to him instead and live. I mean, have a look in your Bibles with me. We see this from, from verse 2 again, but into verse 3. God says, says, Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. And you'll delight in the richest of fare. It means the best of foods. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I'll make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. God is saying, Listen to me, come. And if you do, you'll live. 
And notice as well, if they do listen, God promises He's going to make with them an everlasting covenant based on His faithful love to David. And you might be wondering, well, what on earth is going on there? What's that referring to? Well, David was a king who lived in about the year 1000 BC, so 300 odd years before Isaiah. And God had made some really big promises to David. Uh, Check it out, 2 Samuel 7. God had said to David, so David was a king uh, a couple hundred years before, God had said to him, when your days are over, David, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, notice that God's promising that David's offspring will succeed him. He's going to raise up a descendant of David. And how long is this descendant of David going to reign for? He's going to reign forever. It's an an everlasting kingdom. So you can see this is the promise in 2 Samuel 7. This is the one that's being referred to in Isaiah 55, where God says he's going to make an everlasting covenant with his people based on his faithful love promised to David. And uh, who is that offspring of David? Uh, You might be wondering who God is going to raise up. Well, that king, that descendant of David is Jesus. In fact, a few weeks ago, we saw that the very first verse of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, draws attention to the fact that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. We looked at that a few weeks ago. Jesus is a descendant of Abraham, fulfilling the promises God made in Genesis 12. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham through whom all nations of the earth will be blessed. But Matthew 1.1 also points out that Jesus is a descendant of David, fulfilling the promises of God made in 2 Samuel 7. Jesus is the offspring of David who will reign forever over an everlasting kingdom. Isn't it amazing how, how all these different places are connected and fulfilled in Jesus? You know, the Bible is not just a book of moral examples or things to do or disconnected stories. No, the Bible is one connected narrative of God's great story of redemption. I mean, Abraham, he lived a thousand years before David. And David lived a thousand years before Jesus. And yet in Jesus, all these huge promises are fulfilled. And don't forget little old Isaiah kicking around there as well in seven. BC, he was just adding more of these promises and predictions that point towards Jesus. All these events are one are, are interwoven with the promises of God, who's been working his plans out throughout history with Jesus as the climax of history. So in Isaiah 55, when God says, Come to me, and I'll make you this everlasting covenant, my faithful love promised to David, he's inviting them to come. And listen to him and receive his blessing and live. That's what he was calling them to. And God's calling us to that as well. God is a good doctor who hasn't just given us some pain meds to mask the problem. He's given us a deep and lasting solution for our fatal heart condition of sin. But now he's calling us to accept that cure. To come to Jesus, the the son of Abraham, the son of David, who died and rose for us so that he could reign over an eternal kingdom where we get to live with him forever. That's what God's offering. 
but the choice is ours. Both for the Israelites back then and for us now, we have to choose whether or not we'll take God up on that offer. Have a look in your Bibles with me where we see this in verses 6 to 7. It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. Now, when it says the wicked and the unrighteous, it's not just talking about, you know, those really bad people, those murderers and criminals. No, we saw last week that sin actually affects all of us. Uh, Sin is the heart condition that leads us to curve in on ourselves, our inclination to ignore God and want to do things our own way. And so the wicked is not those horrible people out there. It's average people like me and you who choose to ignore God and do things our own way. And this passage is calling us to forsake our wicked ways of ignoring God and living for ourselves and instead to come to God and listen to him. Because as we saw, all of us pursuing the same thing in life, and there are so many different ways that we can pursue it, you can basically boil them down into two categories. Will I do it my way or God's way? Will I try to live as the king or queen of my own life, wanting to call my own shots and be the captain of my own destiny? Or will I let Jesus... God's chosen king, be in control of my life and call the shots? Will I listen to God as he invites us to in Isaiah 55? Or will I listen to my own heart and my own tuitions and let those set the agenda for my life? Where will I seek satisfaction and happiness? Will I seek it in God? Or will I seek it my own way in the things of this world? That's the fundamental choice. Everyone wants to be happy, but we either pursue it our way or God's way. There really are only two ways to live. And that's what God is urging his people to do, to choose in verses 1 to 7. It's the choice they were faced with and for us too. But God doesn't want us to make that choice blindly. In this passage, God reasons with us, showing us why we should forsake our sinful ways and instead come to him and do things his way. He gives us a few reasons. The first reason he gives us is that his ways are better. Uh, Have a look in your Bibles with me where we see this in verses 8 to 9. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, these verses are often quoted to mean, you know, God's thoughts are so much higher than ours that they're so unknowable, so just stop trying to understand God. You know, if someone brings up the Trinity or something that's hard to understand, you just say, oh, well, God's thoughts are not our thoughts. But that's not at all what these verses are saying. When it says God's thoughts and ways are higher than ours, it's not saying they're unknowable, it's saying they're better. And one big clue for this is to notice that verse 8 starts with a for. A for or a because at the start of a verse means that this is giving the reason for what comes before it. So that pushes us to ask, what's the connection between verses 8 to 9 here and the verses just before them? How how do these, these give a reason for what's just been said? 
Well, have a look. Have a look at verses 6 to 7. God tells us what? He tells us to forsake our sinful ways and our unrighteous thoughts. Now, ways refers to behavior or action or ways of living. And thoughts refers to, as you can imagine, ways of thinking. So God is saying, forsake your sinful ways and thoughts. But why? Why do this? Well, verses 8 to 9 give the reason. Forsake your sinful ways and thoughts for God's ways and thoughts are higher than ours. They're better. That's the reason that we should leave those ways behind. You know, there's a common misconception that when God says to forsake our sinful ways, he's being a cosmic spoil sport. You know, he's just this grumpy old man up there saying, hey, stop having so much fun down there. You know, be more serious. But it's the complete opposite. God's inviting us to stop drinking toilet water and come to the banquet. Stop, you know, to stop drinking the gross stuff that won't satisfy. And instead, come get the best wine and milk. Stop chewing on cardboard and come to the feast and, and eat what is good. Why spend your money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? You know, this isn't just theoretical. This is deeply practical. I mean, think about some of the some concrete examples of sinful ways that God tells us to turn away from. One obvious example is sleeping around. If you surveyed the average Aussie, they would tell you that having the freedom to sleep around will make you happier. That monogamy, you know, the idea of being married to one person for life, well, that's just outdated. That's a straight jacket. I mean, if anything, it's harmful. And people would be far more satisfied if they were just free from that and free to have multiple sexual partners, as many as they wanted. I think that that idea is so pervasive in our society. But did you know that it's directly contradicted by all the available evidence? That the actual studies that have been done on this show that the more sexual partners you have, well, that's jumped ahead. The more sexual partners you have, the lower your sexual satisfaction goes. The more you sleep around, the less satisfied you'll be. So when God calls us to trust his good design of monogamy, of being married to one person for life, is he being just a spoiler sport saying, hey, stop having so much fun? Not at all. He's calling us to a deeper and far more real satisfaction. He's calling us to come and listen to him, to trust him, for his ways are better. Just last weekend at Credo, a guy named Noah was sharing his testimony about how he'd been living a a life of drugs and alcohol and partying and sex. But but listen to what he said. As he was sharing his testimony, he quoted Isaiah 55, 1 to 2. And then he said this, and I quote, I thought I could find satisfaction in this life. I was thirsty and hungry, and I tried drugs and alcohol and pleasure to find it. I even tried psychology, but none of them worked. They left me empty. But now, knowing Jesus, my new hope is I'll be fully satisfied in the life to come with him. God's calling us to come to him. Why? Because his ways are higher. 
They're better. They're more satisfying. It's not just sex or partying. It's, it's all the, anything else that we sinful humans might convince ourselves will make us happy. It could be career or money or reputation or fame or travel or, or whatever else it might be. Uh, you know, we look at uh, Hollywood actors or TikTok stars or the rich and famous and we think, well, surely they must be happy. They seem to be smiling in all their pictures. Maybe they've got it all together. And yet you don't have to look hard to find story after story of world-famous Hollywood actors whose personal lives are a broken mess, of wealthy and powerful people who, behind the scenes, feel empty and depressed. Paul D. Meyer is a psychiatrist who's observed this phenomenon countless times. He writes, I've had millionaire businessmen come to my office and tell me they have big yachts, uh, big houses, yachts, condominiums, nice children, a beautiful mistress, an unsuspecting wife, secure corporate positions, and suicidal tendencies. They have everything this world has to offer except one thing, inner peace and joy. They're not happy. And it puts the lie to that almost constant message that we get fed in our culture that these things will satisfy us. They won't. So God is calling us to come to him for what is better. In Christ, God is offering us infinitely more than the things that we look to for pleasure and satisfaction. There's a well-known quote by C.S. Lewis that makes this point well. He says, If we consider the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord Jesus finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So the first reason that God calls us to forsake our sinful ways and thoughts is that his ways are better. And the second is that God delivers on his promises. Sin promises so much, but fails to deliver. But when God promises true satisfaction, you can take that to the bank. Uh, Have a look in your Bibles with me from verses 10 to 13. Now, the NIV drops out the four at the start of verse 10, uh, but if you read something like the ESV, uh, that's slightly more literal there. It does have a four there. So this is giving another reason for why we should turn to God and forsake our sinful ways. Verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is the word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of a thorn bush will grow the juniper, and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever." When God promises something, you can trust it. His word won't return to him empty. It'll accomplish what he desires and achieve the purpose for which he sent it. And what is that purpose here in this passage? Verse 12, 
he says we will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. He points us forward to a glorious future made new in Christ, when even the creation itself will be partying and singing and clapping its hands. In Christ, God promises us not only forgiveness, but perfect fulfillment in a glorious new creation with Him for all eternity. If we'll only humble ourselves and respond and take His cure, if we'll only turn from our sin and put our trust in Jesus, this is what God is inviting us to. God delivers on His promises which is in stark contrast to sin. Sin promises so much, but fails to deliver. You know, we've all heard before about those famous and successful people who are, you know, smiling in public, but deeply unhappy behind the scenes. But, you know, if you're anything like me, we're quite skilled at fooling ourselves into thinking that we're different. Like, oh, sure, them, like, they're successful and they're unhappy, but if it was me, oh, that'd be enough for me. I'd be happy. You know, I wonder, what is it that you think would make you truly happy? In those moments where you're daydreaming, where your mind, what is that thing that your mind just keeps going to? Finish this sentence in your own mind. I would, I would really be happy or content or fulfilled. I would finally be satisfied if only I had. What is it for you? Maybe it's a relationship, if I could just be married, if I could just be with that person. Maybe it's a job, if I could just have, be in that career. If I could just look like that or have that experience or make that much money. Whatever it is for you, these things can loom so large in our minds, can't they? And we think, if I could just have that, I'd be satisfied, I'd be happy. And then we spend our whole lives laboring for what does not satisfy those things won't deliver. Once you achieve those things, they just leave you empty. Christopher Parkening is considered by many to be the world's greatest classical guitarist and quite a remarkable person. He achieved his musical dreams by the young age of 30. I can say that's young because um, I'm 30. It seems pretty young. You know, kind of at that age where you start to look at all these professional people who have achieved things in their life and realize, oh, they're younger than me. What's going on? But but despite his remarkable success, uh, he felt completely unfulfilled. He was the absolute top of his field, global recognition. And this is what he, his reflection, he wrote this. If you arrive at a point in your life where you have everything that you've ever wanted and thought would make you happy, and it still doesn't, then you start questioning things. It's the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I had that. And I thought, well... What's left? Shortly after this, he was visiting friends, and through them, he discovered who Jesus really is and what it means to follow him. And Christopher Parkening put his trust in Jesus, and he later described the change he experienced, and this is what he wrote. I now have a joy, a peace, a deep-down fulfillment in my life I'd never had before. My life has a purpose. I've learned firsthand the true secret of genuine happiness. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that life's going to be a bed of roses when you start following Jesus. No, Jesus himself said that this life, it's going to be hard following him. We're going to have to deny ourselves in this life as we look forward to true life in the age to come. 
going to be hard in this life, but we do that knowing the promise of that glorious eternity with him that gives us a joy and contentment and satisfaction even in the midst of the hardships that we're going to face in this life. Sin promises so much, but it fails to deliver. But God delivers on his promises. And in Christ, he has promised us both forgiveness, if we turn to him, and also deep and lasting fulfillment for all eternity. God is the good doctor who's provided the deepest solution for the sin in our hearts. But each one of us still has to choose whether or not we'll accept the cure he's offering us. So will you come to him and listen to him? Perhaps you're here tonight and you're still investigating Jesus. If that's the case, we're so glad you're here and we'd love you to discover the joy of knowing Jesus. And if you've got more questions as to what that looks like, please do chat to the person who invited you along or, or come find me after the service. We'd love to chat to you. Well, maybe you're here tonight and you are a Christian. But as you look at your life, you realize that you have been seeking satisfaction in all the wrong places. You've, your heart has been captured by the things of this world. And instead of listening to God, you've been listening to your own heart to set the trajectory for your life. If that's you, God is calling you to come to him again. God's calling you to stop spending your labor on what does not satisfy and look to him instead. So we're going to sing in a moment, but before we do, let's close by hearing again this invitation from God himself to each one of us. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you'll delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live.